our reading today is from Psalms 42 and 43, which can be found on page 567 of the Church Bibles. So Psalm 42 and 43, page 567. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the Mighty One, with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Saviour and my God. My soul is downcast within me, therefore I will remember you from the land of Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizar, deep calls to deep, in the roar of your waterfalls, all your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day the Lord directs his love, at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me saying to me all day long, Where is your God? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Saviour and my God. Vindicate me, my God, and plead my cause against an unfaithful nation. Rescue me from those who are deceitful and wicked. You are God my stronghold, Why have you rejected me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? Send me your light and your faithful care. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my joy and my delight. I will praise you with a lyre, O God, my God. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Saviour and my God. Thank you, Paul. Well, question. When did you last pant after anything? When did you pant for anything at all? Is Nigel here? Nigel, I can't see Nigel. Do you pant when you're doing the marathon? So we've got one person here who pants. We don't pant very much, do we? Alright, so one person pants in the marathon. How many folk here would say we pant after God? Because that was a question I had to ask myself 
as I thought about this psalm. It's very intense, isn't it? That language is incredibly intense. And that's partly why we've been singing some of the songs we've been singing uh, this evening. Because Psalm 42 is the beginning. We're doing a little series, Psalms. You'll see on the little heading there, it says, Of the Sons of Korah. And you can spend hours in your small groups discussing who the sons of Korah were. And nobody knows, so that's fine. But all the Psalms that we're looking at, they have this theme around our relationship with God, the nature of our relationship with God. And we're starting with this, um, this Psalm 42 uh, and 43, which is very, very personal and intense and quite, and quite difficult. I say we're talking about Psalm 42 and 43. Um, that's because they are generally regarded as one psalm. Uh, so they're sort of constructed like this. I know you can't see the words, uh, but it doesn't matter too much. Um, so the left-hand side is the beginning of Psalm 42, uh, and then it ends with that, that chorus. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Saviour and my God. And in that first section, the psalmist is, is really looking back on the good times, spiritually, if you like. And then we hit that middle block, which is the end of Psalm 42. And there, really, rather than looking back, he's looking around him at what's going on. And it gets him down. And we go to that same chorus. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed with me? me? Put your hope in God, for I will praise him, my Saviour and my God. And then you move into Psalm 43, which is really, instead of looking back or looking around, looking ahead to what God will do. And again he comes back to that same promise. Why, my soul, are you so downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Saviour and my God. So we could work through that in that sort of order, but instead... What I want to draw out are some themes that run all the way through, because there's an awful lot of stuff going on in these psalms. Four themes that really tell us what it's like to live as a Christian. Experience that we have living the Christian life. And the four headings are on the back of the, uh, the orange sheet. Uh, passion, difficulties, distance, and promise. Now I'm told that good things begin with P and bad things begin with D. So we'll find out, apart from the current speaker, of course. So <laughs> we will see. Let's talk about passion. I, to be honest, I wasn't sure whether to use that word passion. It's, it sounds a bit odd. It's not in the text. Um, and I was worrying a little bit about using it, even um, this morning. And then we popped into a church and I only got to the last five words of the sermon. And the last five words of the sermon were, we must have more passion for God. So I thought, okay, passion's all right, if, if that's the only words I heard today. Let's talk about passion. Because this is a pretty passionate psalm, isn't it? Look, he says, like a deer desperate for water in the desert, I'm panting after God. He thirsts for God in verse 2. He's crying non-stop. He pours out his soul in verse 4. It's strong stuff, tears day and night. What gets you passionate? Because passion is a very sort of overused uh, word nowadays, isn't it? All it's had to deer up crying. There we go. 
It's a much overused word, isn't it? Let me give you two examples of passion. Tell me which one you think this psalmist is using. Um, I was sitting on a tube, uh, and I was doing what everybody does on the tube. I was reading the person next door's mail on their laptop. Uh, And it was a lady rehearsing a job interview. And it was headed up, she had eight things I must say. Which I thought, well, you're not going to get this job, dear, if you go in like that. But never mind, eight things I must say. Number one, I am passionate about media advertising. That's what she was going to say. She was going to go into an interview with me or you and say, I'm passionate about media advertising. And I thought, well, you're not, are you? You're quite keen on it, quite interested, might earn you a bit of money, but you're not passionate. Another case we had was um, Judith and I were in a bar. I often have to get Judith out of bars, but we were in a bar and we were away from here and we were watching the Wimbledon final, the tennis final. And there was a lady in the bar who was passionate for Federer to win. I've never seen anything like it. She was just beside herself. Um, The effect was that everybody else started supporting Djokovic just to see what would happen. But she got more and more passionate. And at the end, when Federer lost... She was just completely broken, absolutely distraught, tears flooding down her face. And her husband and her family all got around the world of a group hug and support her. Uh, it was pathetic. But, <laughs> but, but, think about this psalmist. What sort of behaviour is he showing? Is he the, I'm passionate about media advertising? Or is he, I'm passionate for Federer? It's Federer passion, isn't it? Just the whole life depends on the Lord. Now, what about you? When you're chatting to your neighbours, when we're chatting to our, I'll say you, me, when we're chatting to our friends, what sort of passion for the Lord comes over? Is it, well, I quite like him, really. Or is it, I just can't live without him. He's my everything. Because that's what we're seeing in this psalm, isn't it? This passion for the Lord. Now, I suppose the question is, why? Where does this come from? Where does this come from, this passion uh, that this psalmist has? I don't know where the Federer supporter got it from, but we do get a sense where the psalmist gets it from because the psalmist, whoever he or she for that matter may be, knows their God. They know God personally. Look at verse 1. It's there straight away. My God is the expression the psalmist used. Verse 2. I want to meet with him. Some translations say I want to meet with my God face to face. Look at verse uh, 4 right at the end of um, the, the next psalm. Oh God, my joy and my delight. Oh God, my God. This is someone who has a deeply personal relationship with God. I don't know whether it comes out on that, maybe we've lost it, Um, but I tried to highlight the number of times the word God is in this psalm. Uh, You can have a little look uh, later on perhaps. It's extraordinary. That is the focus of the psalm. It isn't on the psalmist and his troubles, it's on his God. It's a deeply personal relationship and it's a relationship that shows complete dependence because all the way through whatever's happening to this psalmist in his life he's calling out to God he's praying to God verse 8 slightly slightly 
complicated verse, but it seems to be saying that God is the psalmist's prayer all day and all night. That is his number one priority. Now we're looking at the Old Testament, but of course the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. The God that this psalmist is praying to is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Even if the psalmist doesn't recognise God in that way. That is who he's praying to. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And for us, that God we have seen in Jesus Christ, haven't we? We've seen the living God who the psalmist is praying to here uh, in action, if you like. We've seen a living God who protects uh, and saves. And he's a living God who in the person of Jesus says, this is the sort of relationship I want with you. We don't know how the psalmist arrived at this understanding, but we do know that Jesus says, I want that same relationship with every one of us here. In fact, he wants that relationship with everyone in the world, but he wants it very much with us here. Here's a verse, very familiar verse, Revelation 3.20. Jesus says, I'm standing at your front door and I'm ringing the bell and all you've got to do is answer the bell and we'll come in and have a meal together. That's not quite what Revelation 3.20 says, but that's the sense of it. I want that relationship of coming in and sharing my life with you uh, and eating with you. And uh, Paul, Romans 10, says that we believe, not just with our heads, but with our heart. It's very easy, isn't it, to make our faith quite an academic exercise. But this psalm doesn't let you do that. It echoes uh, Romans 10. We believe with our heart because we are called into a love relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's great news. And that's very much something we look at at Alpha. And it would be lovely to say, wonderful. Have this wonderful relationship with our Creator God. Everything from then on will be wonderfully easy. But of course that's wrong and it would be unhelpful. Uh, and that is why we have a couple of D's to look at tonight. Um, and the reason we have the D's is because as Christians it's important to be prepared for when life is not a bed of roses. And that's why this psalm is there to help us. Uh, and the first D we got is, is difficulties. Um, and actually something that Phil talked about quite a lot last week in the evening, looking at 2 Timothy. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about the sort of the difficulties of the Christian life because uh, Phil did talk about that and that sermon's uh, available on the, um, on the uh, website, I guess. But it is worth just seeing what difficulties this man is facing because it helps us understand what's going on in the psalm because it, we, we, he doesn't tell us exactly but we get an idea. So the first thing is he seems to be uh, an outcast. He seems to have been separated from his homeland. Uh, and we don't know whether that's by exile or we don't know whether uh, maybe he's just retired and can't afford to live in Jerusalem anymore. Uh, whatever, he seems a long way away. Verse 6 seems to say he is up in Jordan, somewhere near Mount Hermon, which is uh, this picture here. Uh, Mount Hermon is now so far out of Israel, it's now part of the UN buffer zone between Lebanon, Syria and, and Israel. And that's where we think the guy who's writing the psalm was. He was a long way from where he wanted to be. He was homesick 
if you like. For those students who are here, maybe, first term, wishing you weren't here, well, Psalm 42, uh, that's how he felt too. So he's a long way from home. He's in a hostile culture. Um, look at verse 3. He says, I'm taunted all day long. Uh, 42 verse 9, 43 2, he says he's oppressed by his enemies. He's living in a culture that just does not like the followers of God or for us the followers of the Lord Jesus. The other day I was in Oxford Street coming home uh, and I got caught up in, uh, I suppose it was a celebration of Mohammed's grandson who apparently was a martyr to toleration or something. And I don't think I've ever felt so oppressed. It was just horrible. There were thousands of folk uh, in, in their black gear banging their drums and, and wailing and shouting out to a false god. And it just felt an alien culture to be in. It wasn't nice at all. And this is perhaps what this man's saying. I'm in, a, I'm in a hostile culture where people do not want me to worship my god. In fact, some of the words in this psalm, when you start reading all the commentaries, they some of the words are ugaritic, which is a great word, um, but it is the language of the Amorites. And the Amorites were Baal worshippers. So he's picked up language from the local culture. Nothing wrong with that, but it just reflects the situation he was in. He was in a, a hostile culture. There's also a great sense of depression here. A lot of the commentaries say this is a psalm about depression. I'm not sure that's the whole story, but nonetheless, there is a really strong sense, isn't there, of being downcast. That's the word that keeps coming back. Verse 7, you get this sense of being overwhelmed by the deep waves. Twice he says he's in mourning. He seems to be in darkness. Look, uh, verse 3 of 43, he needs the light to be sent to him. He remembers the joy of being in the temple in verse 4, but that's, that's left him. So a sense of depression, and maybe physically ill too. Verse 10 talks about someone, uh, something physically wrong in the bones, doesn't it? So it's not a rare sunshine, it's a, a bit depressing. This is someone who is really going through it. But the great thing about the Bible is it's sometimes it's brutal honesty, isn't it? And these are things we all experience, we all experience uh, that sense of being uh, not where we would like to be. We all experience genuine depression, don't we? Uh, he's taunted, isn't he? He's mocked by people uh, for his faith. And some of those things are just a fact of life. Every human being is going to go through them. I haven't heard the phrase from Ian Barclay for a long time referring to our bodies as a portable piece of plumbing. That's a great phrase Ian's often used. Our bodies wear out. Things go wrong. And at the same time, we're in a spiritual battle too. And interesting to note, isn't it? The psalmist is obviously open about his faith. The fact that people are having a go at him means he's telling people about what he believes. So despite feeling like this, he's still out there inviting people to Alpha or whatever he's doing. So we need to be realistic. Being a Christian is not going to be an automatically easy life. We all know that from personal experience. But the important thing, really important thing from this psalm, this is its big message in a way at this point, is just because you're having a hard time does not mean God's ignoring you. 
it's easy to think, why am I going through this? God's forgotten me. Something wrong here. But the fact is, the psalm sort of gets that that isn't the point. Because all the way through the psalm, remember, he's calling out to God. He's not saying, oh well, God doesn't exist. He's praying to him all the time. In a bizarre way, while he's saying, well, I don't know where God is, he's calling to him. He never loses sight of calling out to his heavenly father. So he knows he's there. He absolutely knows that in all these situations, God is there with him somewhere. And that's really important. Even if we can't see him, we know God is with us. And that's exactly why this psalm is here, really. Saying these two things are happening at the same time. I'm going through a really tough time. But at the same time, God is there. I can call out to him. Now, why that might happen, we'll pick up perhaps when we look at the next D. Because the next D, um, I called it distance. I found another book uh, just the other day that called it desertion, which perhaps would have been a, a better word. But it's quite clear in this psalm, isn't it, that the psalmist feels that God is at a distance. Perhaps he feels deserted, he feels abandoned. He obviously wasn't always like that, but you can see the phrases like uh, verse 9, he says he's been forgotten. Verse 2, he says he's been rejected. I was trying to think back to what it feels like to be lost or to be abandoned. And the only thing that came back to me, or the memory that came back most strongly to me, which I suspect we've all had, is being, being very small and being lost. I was lost in a supermarket. Have you ever had that? Your mother toddling off to do something, or your care or whatever, has gone off and you've just been left by the baked bean counter or something like that. And you're only this high, and the baked beans are up there, and you can't see anything. And so your only thing you can do is just bawl out as loudly as you can, and cry as loudly as you can. And your mother comes scampering around the back of the tin of beans and is very embarrassed by the noise you're making. But it's that awful feeling we have when we're little, isn't it? Of being lost and being abandoned. And what is going to happen? Well... That is a real Christian spiritual experience, isn't it? Despite that passionate love affair we have with the Lord Jesus, this experience of the psalmist is something that we all have in our spiritual life. It's one of those things that I don't think we feel very comfortable talking about. We sort of keep it in a bit of a background. We put on a brave face. But it is a fact of life that we all go through times or feeling abandoned, deserted, God being at a distance. It's a real experience. Joseph Simmons is not someone I've come across before, but he was a Puritan writer, and he wrote a whole book on this topic, which I didn't have time to read of all of it, but this is something he said in one of the earlier chapters. Few can say they have found God who do not also say that they have lost him. Few can say they have found God who do not also often say that they have lost him. In other words, it's quite a common experience for Christians in their Christian walk to find God at a distance. Now, I don't know how that will feel. It will feel perhaps your your, your prayers just don't seem to be getting anywhere. You feel uh, dry and you you don't know, know, it just seems things seem to be a waste of time. So the question is, why does that happen? Well, there may be three reasons why you don't sense, if you like, God in your life. 
One is that you've never invited him in in the first place, in which case this sermon really has got nothing to do with you. The first thing you need to do is to ask God into your life. You repent, you ask Jesus Christ into your life. That's number one. We can talk about that after, we can form an orderly queue, and we can deal with that. The second reason, for those who are already believers, um, is that there can be something in our lives that we're hanging on to where God says, look, until that is sorted out, you know, there's just going to be at a distance between us. And that is when we need to examine ourselves, to some extent what the psalmist is doing, he's talking to himself, and saying, is there something I need to sort out? Is God telling me this is getting in the way of our relationship? The Catholic Catechism, I was amazed, great thick book of Catholic doctrine, um, has a chapter or a section on spiritual dryness, which is kind of what this is talking about. has a wonderful phrase in it. It says, the plant will, be, will wither if the roots are no good. You know, if there's a problem somewhere else, then the plant gets dry. So there may be something that you need to sort out, uh, if that is your spiritual condition at the moment. But this psalm isn't dealing with either of those. It's saying, no, there will be times when God just seems to be at a distance. You might say you no longer feel filled with the Holy Spirit. And however much you pant and you pray and you tears, nothing seems to help. So what's going on there? And it seems to be that what's happening is when we enter those periods, God is teaching us how much we need to rely on him. Jim Packer says the reason why the Bible keeps telling us God is our rock and our stronghold and our sure foundation is because so many other times it has to remind us that we are weak and incapable of sorting out our own salvation or looking after ourselves. And sometimes, and maybe often, we need to be taught and retaught that point, that we cannot sort out our own salvation by ourselves. We need to rely on God. If God needs to withdraw for a while to help us learn that, that's what's happening. And you see it every now and again in the New Testament. And one example, I guess, we'll all remember, it's in Mark's Gospel when the disciples are rowing across Galilee and they're in a storm and they're going down and it's all going horribly wrong and they think they're going to drown. And Jesus appears and he keeps at a distance, doesn't he? And he walks past. And the disciples have to cry out to him. And they have to learn to cry out to him to close that distance and for him to come back. So we do experience these times of desertion, but they are there to help us to grow. And it's a time when we draw on our memories, like the psalmist does, when we check ourselves out, give ourselves an MOT. Perhaps it's a time for learning in silence. And it's a time when our passion gets refueled, as it were. And for those of you perhaps who are going through times like that, can I just say sometimes it can go on a long time. We don't know with this psalmist, it could have been going on for weeks, months, don't we? You get the sense day and night this has been happening. It's not just a few hours. We can experience this for a long time. But got to end with a P, because there is, of course, a great promise. I wasn't quite sure it was promise, because really it's more to do with confidence. It's what the speaker is almost saying to himself, isn't he? Because that refrain we get, verse 5, verse 11 and 5, he's promising himself he will see God again. 
Why is his soul downcast, he says? Well, his answer is really, I think, it really shouldn't be. It really doesn't need to be, because my hope is in my Saviour and my God. I will praise him again. You know, we live in a time when confidence in institutions and confidence in business and confidence in politics is all plummeting, isn't it? But here is one place where confidence does not drop. I will see my God again. And the basis of that confidence kind of goes back to that passionate relationship again. It's how well he knows God. Just look through the words that he uses to describe God in this, uh, in this psalm. It's amazing how many there are, how quickly. So I'm going to rattle through them really quickly. Uh, verse 2, uh, living. He's a living God. Verse 1, he's my personal God. Verse 2, I'll meet him face to face. Verse 4, he's mighty. He, something to be joyful. Uh, verse 5, he's my saviour. 8, a loving God. Verse 9, he's my rock. Then verse 1 again, he's my rescuer. 2, my stronghold. Uh, he brings light and faithful care, verse 3. Uh, he's holy. Uh, he's praiseworthy. Um, in fact, you'll see he also talks about God using the word God most of the way through. That's the translation for Yahweh, the God of a personal relationship. And then I think it's in verse 8, he refers to God as the Lord, doesn't he? That's the Lord of hosts, the God of the universe. So he even understands that a very just those two words, the relationship personal relationship with this huge and mighty God. So how do we know God like that? How do we enter into that sort of relationship? Well, of course, we look at Jesus Christ, don't we? We see him living a holy and faithful life. We see him abandoned to death on a cross. It saves us from the just punishment we deserve. He defeats the death that we should face. And he's that living God now. Lots of words that come out of that. Psalm. And that's the reason for the great joy and praise that comes through in each of those choruses. It's the Jesus who we said earlier asked us to turn and open the door of our heart to him. And I'll say again, that's why we need to be bringing our friends and our neighbours to Alpha, because folk need to have the chance to open that door. Let me uh, wrap up, really. I mean, we're invited into this passionate love affair with God in Jesus. And the Bible is clear, this isn't just a matter of responding with our heads, we respond with our whole souls, with our hearts. And when we do that, there are going to be difficulties, they're going to be the normal stuff of life, people are going to have a go at us for being believers, and we're going to have times when God seems distant. But the fact is, all through that, we know God is there, he's with us, and his Holy Spirit never leaves us. Here's a final line from Joseph Simmons again, a Puritan quote to end with. I'll read it twice. We may lose the sense of grace, but we can never lose the life of grace. It's a great promise, isn't it? It's a great line. We may lose the sense of grace, but we can never lose the life of grace. Let's pray. Father God, I just want to thank you that whatever we go through and whatever we feel, we know that you are there. You are alongside us and we know that we will see you face to face. And we thank you so much that we can never, ever lose that life of grace. Amen.